0: Corinthians says this. Love suffers long in his kind. Love does not envy. Love does not prate itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Father, again, we thank you that this is the type of love that you had towards us. Lord, thank you that your love never fails us. Even though, as we just sang, we run away or we fall hard, you pursue us. Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray that that would be the same type of love, though not yet perfected in our lives, as how we treat others. Lord, I pray that as we look at these characteristics, at least the negative ones today, that you would allow us not to rationalize away our behavior. Lord, the areas that we need to change and be convicted in, that you would convict us and we would be teachable. Lord, again, thank you that you are changing us and growing us to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have that hope So, Lord, as we get convicted, we're not discouraged. Actually, we're encouraged because we know that you are working in us. Again, I pray that you'd give us focus and give us understanding. And please transform us to become more like you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians... We'll start out in verse in chapter 12, but we'll get immediately to chapter 13. Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians 12 by saying this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And this is the context. And again, I keep going back to this because the context... Of First Corinthians thirteen is the fact that he's talking about giftedness. How do you serve one another? And as you know, that's been that's going to become our theme, our for the uh, for the entire year. Galatians five thirteen. But through love, serve one another. And. And I've decided to take a long rabbit trail to really see what love looks like. This is why, because a lot of, a lot of times I, I think we would say that we are loving people. If I went up to you to this next week and said, are you a loving person? Or let's say three weeks ago, are you a love?" Yeah, I'm a loving person. Because we kind of put into that whatever we think love is and then, you know, come out, with, yeah, we're a loving person. I'm a loving person. Thankfully, God in his word has actually laid it out for us. Well, this is what love looks like. But again, the whole context is spiritual giftedness out of chapters 12, 13, and 14. And some of the main points that we need to make sure we're never ignorant of, one is found in verse 7, that the gifts are given to each one for the profit of all. That's huge. Because sometimes spiritual gifts are somehow promoted as though it's self-advocation. And the point is is that God has given you a spiritual gift so that you might serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. The other thing that I think is very important and that we should not be ignorant of is found in verse 28 of chapter 12. That God has appointed these in the church. It was God's will. And he has said that a number of times in this chapter. But right there, he's appointed. In other words, whatever gift you have, it's been appointed by God. You didn't earn it, you didn't beg for it, God gave it. God gave it sovereignly and the other final very important point is that no gift is given to all believers. You see this in verse twenty nine are all apostles, prophets, teachers, and so there is no gift that should be elevated like everyone should get this to really show spirituality that is incorrect, and then he transitions verse thirty one but i but earnestly desire the best gift in other words pray that the gifts that really edify will be in the body of christ and i believe he's talking about the the first ones because he says he names them first second third you know he goes right down but then he says this second part of verse 31 and yet i show you a more excellent way and that's where we'll be today the excellent way what's more important than even spiritual giftedness is this love and yet we have a tendency to exalt the gifts And sometimes not understand that unless we love, it's nothing. And that's what he's saying in in chapter 13, verse 1. And though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Where's my pot? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I won't put you through that. But wasn't that irritating? But see, that gives an indication. And by the way, it's not just about tongues. It's about any gift that is done without love. It's irritating. It's irritating. I've known people who have been irritating. No, really. I mean, they were gifted by God, but they didn't have love. And it's irritating because it's abrasive. It's in your face. It's obnoxious. It's loud. It's really repulsive. And it's repulsive to God. Again, he brings up tongues first because that was the issue that he's dealing with. You know, he keeps going back from tongues to prophecy. But he goes on. It's not just about tongues. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. So not only is it wrong to think that speaking in tongues is of greater importance than loving, but to somehow think that knowing in faith is more important than loving. By the way, you need faith. (laughs) We're justified by faith. But the faith is the foundation that that love is built on, and we need to be progressing to loving. Because love is the outworking of our faith, right? Because true faith works. I think we've said that many times. True faith works. And so you need to look at your life and say, Are you nothing? By the way, he said, I am nothing, not I am next to nothing. And then finally, verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, all my goods, notice the all's here. And though I give my body to be burned, martyrdom, all, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, love is always self-sacrificial, self-sacrificing. Love is always self-sacrificing. But self-sacrifice does not necessarily come from love. Sometimes people sacrifice, but it's not motivated and driven by love. And that's what Paul is getting at. I like what Jerry Bridges said in one of his books. He was talking about this whole concept of nothingness. He says, write down either, either in your imagination or on a sheet of paper. I should actually have you do that, but I won't. But think about it on a sheet of paper, imaginary. A row of zeros. Start writing zeros keep adding zeros until you have filled the whole line on the page. What do they add up to? Exactly nothing. Even if you were to write a thousand of them, they would still be nothing, but put a positive number in front of them and immediately they have value. This is the way it is with our gifts and faith and zeal, because that's what he's referring to. They are zeros on a page. Without real love, they count for nothing, but put quality in front of them and they have value. And just as the number two gives more value to a row of zeros than a number one does, so more and more of real love in our lives can add exponentially greater value to our gifts. So as we love, it adds value. But if you don't love, you may be very gifted, but not show true love. And so Paul keeps saying it it doesn't profit you anything. You're nothing. I'm nothing. Which again is, you know, as I've... uh, thought about this passage over the last few weeks it's it's really amazing to me because even as a pastor for many years you know we talk about spiritual giftedness and then we use the 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 love chapter for relationships and family building and marriages and 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 we might say well you know it has some interconnection it is huge and that's why he wrote it and so we need to say are we a loving people because as we're seeking to serve one another it may not be out of love it might be out actually self-promotion no, we need to love because otherwise we're nothing, especially in God's eyes. So we move to the perfections of love in verse 4, the perfections. And again, this is a portrait of God. This is a portrait of Jesus Christ, if you will. These 15, 16 characteristics are a portrait of how Christ, what Christ is, who Christ is, and also how he relates to you. And then he's going to say, but I want you to serve one another with your gift like this. So this is a portrait, and again, they're all verbs because love is active. <clears throat> you can't passively say "I love." Something has to happen. An interesting point, and we'll be there in a few weeks, months, whatever. When we get to the fruit of the spirit, we're going to see there's a lot of carryover from this passage to Galatians 5:22, when we talk about love is, you know, what is the fruit of the spirit? Love, <laughs> peace, uh, love, joy, peace, you know, and all that. There's a lot of carryover. So these verbs, basically what he's saying is, you can't do this without the fruit of the Spirit in your life, without God's Spirit working through your life. You, can't, you cannot love on your own. Can we just stop right there? Just think about that. What we're going to be talking about today cannot be done on your own. It's not like you go away saying, oh, I'm going to try harder. Well, no, I need to have God's Spirit work in my life to produce these fruit, then I can do it, okay? I can't do it on my own. You know, we will better understand love not only after we study this passage, which is very, very critical, but as we actually apply it to our lives. In other words, we do not simply feel patience, but we must practice patience. (coughs) We must practice it. So we are actually praying that some of these situations will be in our life so that this next week we will be able to show patience. And we might be able to show kindness, maybe in an area we haven't done before that we're going to be able to show not seeking our own, not being arrogant. Lord, give us opportunity this week to show forth these characteristics. And it might even push you to the edge, and you feel like, I don't want to show love. And God is saying, well, yeah, you can't do it on your own. Or you may say, I'm a failure at this. Well, yeah, if you did it on your own. So again, the context is body ministry in, second, in Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's the one and others. It's a spiritual giftedness. And thankfully, God has actually written it down. He didn't just keep using the word love. He said, No, this is what love is, 15, 15 uh, facets. I remember years ago, what was it, 28 years ago now, honey? 29 years ago. Uh, I was going to school, poor. My wife and I were at uh, Practical, which is now Davis. And I knew she was the one for me. And so what do you have to do as a man? You have to go out and get the ring. And uh, I remember learning all about uh, diamonds. You know, I didn't want to buy a junk, although I didn't have much money. And so you had to know the four C's. Can you tell me the four C's? There's there's cut, color, clarity, and carrot, which is weight, which was very small. But anyway... (laughs) You needed those four so you could have a lot of weight, and if the color and the cut was wrong, it was pretty much worthless. But it looked like a big rock. A lot of people walk. Maybe you're walking around with one of them. No. Um, What's the point? The cut. The cut was the way that it was actually designed. Okay, and there was many facets to a diamond, and it's you know supposedly if it's if it's done right, then when the light hits it, it just like brilliance, right? I kind of think of this when it comes to Corinthians 13. These are the facets. See, he says love, but now he's saying, now let me show you all the different facets of love so that when you really see it, it really shines. So again, there's 15 facets. The first one is love is patient. Again, long-suffering, lasting long. And we've covered that last week, but we have to realize that this is the first facet. This is the first beautiful part of love, that it's long-suffering, that it's patient. In other words, it's long spirited. It doesn't lose heart. It doesn't lose heart. Now, again, usually this is found in the context of being, in the context of people, either being wronged by a person or having just to minister to them long term. It doesn't have to necessarily be wrong, wronged by, but the idea is it's in the, it's in the context of people, not circumstance. Not like you had a problem with your car and that, and I got to show patience. No, no. It's got to do with people. Are you patient with people? Are you running long with people? It's the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of. See, both sides, inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again, yet you don't lose heart. What's interesting is God is long suffering towards us, it says in Romans. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. If it wasn't for the goodness and long-suffering of God, we would be in hell. But he was long-suffering. So this is a facet of who Christ is towards us, and we should be to one another. Now again, the Corinthians had failed in that. They were impatient. They were suing each other. They were trying to outdo each other with the gifts. They were carnal. So Paul writes and says, let me tell you, the first facet of love is patient. You are able to run long with passionately other people. And then he says, love is kind. And we covered this one also. But the idea is act of goodwill, serving, being gracious. Those are all the things about kindness. Being constructive. Goodwill, constructive. In other words, you look at a situation, a person's life, and you are constructive in that life. Very, very important. That patience goes along with being constructive. In other words, you're willing to help. And again, in Romans 2, 4, it says, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repent. Same word. See, God didn't just look at you and say, yeah, we have a bunch of damn sinners there. He did something about it. He sent his son to die on the cross to pay for my sin and then draw me to himself... gave me the faith to believe so that I might receive his son's forgiveness and be put into the family of God. You see how every one of those steps is kindness, it's act of goodness, it's constructive towards me. He actually brought me along, made it a path so I could receive him. See, that's that's patience with kindness added in. You know, I think of our own brothers and sisters. I think of Eric and Tina. I didn't say much at the announcement, but they are home. Can you believe she's home? She's home with a halo. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But the Lord, you know, you look at that, they shouldn't have lived. But now's the time that we can show patience and kindness to that family. By the way, one of the things I know in my own life and maybe in yours, we get excited at the front end. It's hard to get excited at the end, right? In other words, it's easy to be excited at the first week, two weeks, but it might be a two, three, two or three-month process. So again, we may be asking, and you may be, you know, you may want to call and say, you know what, I'll bring in a meal, but I'll bring in a few more as time goes on. Um, by the way, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that true? Is that true, by the way? I wonder about that at Christmas time. Is it actually more blessed to give than receive? It is. You know, Christ said that. But again, when you, when you put patience and kindness together, you know, you're talking about active goodwill. And again, they, they'll need to have some other things, um, you know, some help maybe periodically with the kids, maybe even sitting with them because they do need to have some care, I mean, uh, constant care at the, at the front end of this uh, uh, recovery process. So again, that's, what, that's, that's the diamond, okay? The first two characteristics, the first two facets of love. Well, let's go on. Love is also not jealous. It does not envy, okay? It does not envy. The idea here is to burn with zeal. It can be both... By the way, this word can either be positive or negative, depending on the context. Like in verse 31, the second part... uh, No, the first part where it says, "...but earnestly desire the best gifts..." That word desire is the exact same word as this, except that's in the positive. "...desire that the spiritual gifts be truly done properly in the church." That's a positive. Here, Paul says, let me give you a third facet. By the way, all the ones we're looking at today are all in the negative. If you really want to know if you're a loving person, just understand that it doesn't envy. By the way, right now, aren't you already smitten in your heart? I mean, let's make sure we understand that this is the perfection of God, not the perfection of man. We are moving towards this perfection. But boy, I would say this, that with each one of these characteristics, you should, you should be convicted. Sometimes you're going to feel like it's a pin. And sometimes you're going to feel like it's a sword. But the reality is we need to grow in all these. I don't think there's one of them that I could say, well, yeah, I got that one. Give me, you know, give me something else. Love is not jealous. Love and jealousy are mutually Exclusive. Where one is, the other cannot be. So again, not jealous of another's what? Well, in the context, the way that the others were using their giftedness. Again, the Corinthians were a carnal bunch. And they wanted to outshine each other. They were jockeying for front position. There was competitiveness. There wasn't contentment in the church. But this idea of not jealous goes to other people's successes and all the different things that another person would have. And the Bible says that God wants us to not be jealous, not to be envious. I I think this is a continual battle in in a lot of our lives, if not all of our lives. Now, you think about it. Our, our, uh, Our country wants you to be jealous and envious. I mean, let's face it. How dare that neighbor of yours just buy a brand new car? Don't you want a new car? Why are you driving that piece of junk? See, and and there's a little bit of envy and it starts to... That's what a lot of capitalism is all about. I'm not against capitalism, but you take an envious person and you can see where we're going. See, what is envy? Let me give you two different aspects. The first aspect is this. I want what someone else has. I want what someone else has. It might be their looks, their talents, their smarts, their relationship, their things. For the Corinthians, it was their spiritual gifts. For them, it was this. I want tongues. That was really what the issue was. But they didn't understand what true tongues were. But get this. You know, Cain's jealousy of Abel, what? Led him to do what? Murder. So again, you see, it's it's a very serious sin. When love sees someone who is popular or successful or beautiful or talented, it is glad for them, never jealous or envious. I hope you understand that this is very, very difficult. There's a, because te- I've watched my life knowing that, and, and it's like, you know, sometimes you hear about someone has something, and it's almost like this little tinge of, oh, I wish I had. That's envy. I just wish I had. So immediately I say, well, what's the hard attitude? Well, the hard attitude is that it's, there's covetousness, covetousness. There's a lack of contentment. There's a comparing. There's a lack of gratefulness, a lack of thankfulness. I would say this. I think these are hard attitudes that you have to work on. There's a lack of really believing God's sovereignty. I think it all goes back to God. Because that's why we do compare, that's why we aren't content. So the first aspect of envy is I want what someone else has. The second is I wish they did not have what they have. One man said this. Now, catch this the intensity. We feel wounded by the prosperity and the success of another. Have you ever felt wounded? Sometimes that happens at the death of a person. And the family are like um, hyenas at the uh, stuff that's left of mom and dad's estate. (laughs) I don't know, maybe that didn't hit you, but it hits me. There's a lot of stuff that's going on again joseph 's brothers sold or uh, sold Joseph into slavery because of this. There was envy. I mean he said the dreams and no you 're not going to do that that 's not going to be you, not over us. So again, I want what someone else has. I wish that they didn 't have it. James says this, but if you have bitter envy and self seeking in your heart, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. In other words, envy comes when we are self-seeking, when we're not truly trusting God's sovereignty. And again, I see it in my life often. I hate to say that. I mean, it's one of those that you don't think about much, but it is, because I, I test myself when I hear of someone else's success. And many times I'm happy for them, but periodically there's a situation. Where it's like, oh, I wish. You know, think about Jonathan and David. I mean, Jonathan was going towards the throne. His father Saul is king, and he's a prince, and he's moving towards that. And yet David is anointed. He's the greater warrior, he's more popular, and, and, and he's a threat to Jonathan's throne. Yet. Jonathan says this of David. This is what the Bible says of Jonathan towards David. David that he wanted to protect him, and quote, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So how do you get rid of envy? It's when you love people and you love them like yourself. Isn't that love your neighbor as yourself? That's that's the that's the cure. When I'm no longer in the focus, when God's people are in the focus and God is in the focus again corinthians were all envious about everything (laughs) they were carnal and babes and just fighting over you know who could serve the best type of thing and you see and i'm not going to go into too much of why um you know the corinthian situation but i will say this there can be a lot of envy in the church there can be a lot of envy and you see it sometimes in leadership and how ministry is done and i have to have my way well, let's look at another one. And I think he's getting closer and closer to hard attitudes here. Let's, the fourth facet. Love does not parade itself. In other words, it does not brag, some versions say. And I think this is the verbal. This is the verbal part of it. It's proud talk or, quote, being a windbag. Sometimes people in ministry, I, I see this with pastors, are windbags. I can, I, can, I can mention my own group it does not brag or boast of one's abilities and accomplishments of how great they are or defending itself to make itself look good those things you know but is humble and lowly and gracious now again let me connect these jealousy and envy wants others wants what others have bragging is trying to make others jealous of what they have okay do you see the there's kind of a connection here Saying things, speaking. I I notice periodically, I I tell myself, John, just shut up. (laughs) You don't have to talk anymore. See, that's part of the problem with leadership. Sometimes you feel like you have to say it all, and you don't always have to say it all. But here, this is a person not only saying it all, but saying it all so that they might be exalted. It's like Philippians says, regard one another as more important than yourself. Put someone else forward, not parading yourself. I, I like what Charles Trumbell. he once vowed this. He's a preacher that vowed this. He said, quote, God, if you will give me strength every time I have opportunity to introduce the topic of conversation, it will always be Jesus Christ. Lord, if I'm going to talk, let me talk about him or his people or your kingdom. Lord, let me talk about something other than myself. By the way, that doesn't mean that you can't ever share a blessing in your life. You know, let's, but again, what's the motivation? Uh, here, parade itself. I, I want to be front. I, again, I, I will say, sometimes I've seen ministers, pastors, who do that. It's like you can tell they want, they want the accolade. And again, Corinthians had that issue; they wanted the public attention. In fact. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3, it says that you are carnal because, and he says, he said, because you have envy and jealousy in your heart. And it's being showed out on how you're arguing. How you're not getting along. How you're really not trying to promote the other. So again, love does not parade itself. And then number five, the fifth facet, love is not puffed up. Now again, these are kind of, whereas parading itself is the verbal I think this is more the heart being actions, actions of the heart. Love is not puffed up. What's interesting about this word, it is only, is appear, only appears in Scripture this many times, seven times. This many times in First Corinthians, six times. Now that says something. This were, they were very proud, puff, puffed up people. This was a congregation that was puffed up. They had been nurtured to try to put themselves first, which tells me we can also nurture ourselves to put others first. No, this, they were puffed up. They were inflated. By the way, that's pride, right? That's arrogance. Uh, the Bible says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the first thing he mentions is pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall you know pride is hated by god a proud look god says is an abomination to him so again we have to be careful that as we are ministering to one another as we're serving not just our spiritual gift but the one another that we're not we're not arrogant about it we're not trying to do it so that look at look at who i am uh well, I'm a pastor i have to be there otherwise what are people going to think sometimes i have that thought go through my mind or maybe you'll have that thought go through your mind. Well, I have to show up or else what will people think? See, that's actually this. No, no. If I, don't, if I don't do that ministry, what will God think? It's not about us. It's about what does God think? I believe in faithfulness, but I believe it should be driven by humility. Let me say that again. I believe in faithfulness. I believe if you put your hand to a plow in a ministry, you should do it. Whether it's serving, or whether it's a home group, whether it's a men's prayer group, I don't, you know, whether it's ABF, you should be faithful, but it should be driven by humility, not by not by being puffed up. I love this quote. I've mentioned it to you many times over the years, but it's from Andrew Murray, and he, he defined humility. And this is what he said of humility: "Humility is perfect quietness of heart." I love that. Perfect. <sighs> he goes on. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised even. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. And then he ends. The humble person is not one who thinks humbly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. I love that. He doesn't think humbly of himself. I'm going to be humble. He's just not in the picture. He just doesn't think of himself. Since you're in Corinthians, go over 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because Paul answers, you know, when it talks about all that you have. And he uses this word, puffed up. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. This is the last part of verse 6. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf one against the other. And that's one of the uses, puffed up. And then he asks three questions. For who makes you to differ from another? Who makes you to differ? You know, it's interesting with a proud person... They think that they themselves made the difference. But here Paul says, well, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? That's the second question. Who made you different? Why is it that you have what you have? And then notice third. And now if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What makes you different Who gave you what you have? And if those are true, God, why is it that you're boasting about it? That's a marvelous passage because, again, it really pokes the pin in being inflated. If we really start saying, you know what, what I have and who gave it to me, why would I boast? We need to boast in the Lord. God forbid that we should boast except for in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So again, we shouldn't be boasters. We shouldn't be puffed up with pride. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. I liked what, um, there's a story about William Carey. You know, he's considered the father of uh, modern day missions. But anyways, he was a brilliant linguist. Most people don't know all about him. And he was responsible for, catch this, translating parts of the Bible into no fewer than 34 different languages and dialects. Now think about this, a man who lived just a very short time was able to do up to 34 different parts of the translation process. I would say a reason to be proud. He had been raised in a simple home in England and in his early manhood worked as a cobbler. In India, he often was ridiculed for his, quote, low birth and former occupation, at a dinner party one evening, a snob said, quote, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no. Oh, no, Lordship. Carey replied, I was not a shoemaker, only a shoe repairman. <laughs> There's a humble man. It's not about what people think. It's not about what people think. Do we really believe that? It is not about what people think, it is about what God thinks again Corinth yeah, Corinthians failed at that one as well. Well, let's look at another one. Love does not behave rudely. It's not rude. The loveless person behaves in a careless, overbearing, unbecoming manner. That's that's the loveless. And here Paul says no, it doesn't behave rudely or unbecomingly. The opposite I mean, it would be like this. He's not graceless. Graceless. I'd I love to see a graceful person. I don't mean graceful in the way they walk. I mean graceful in the way they approach people. I remember a man, Urban Klein. Wasn't it Urban Klein? He was like 80 plus years old. I think I've told you about him a few times. And he taught us church history. He was 80 plus and he was monotone. He was very boring. It was like just, you know, and and we always had his class like at one o'clock in the afternoon, which means right after lunch, you know, like you're just trying, you know, the carbs are starting to work. Like, what did he say? But he was one of the most gracious people I have ever met in my entire life, period. And I remember as a young guy, 19, 20, learning all this theology, almost wanting to argue, and I would bring up certain things in his presence. And you know what he would, well, we need to think about that or something like that, he would say. The idea is, listen, slow down. I'll listen. I mean, he could have just, you know, I'm sure he could have just given me the answer and, you know, kind of like destroyed me in the sense of just, you know, well, you just grow up. Stop trying to argue about theology. Just worship God. But you know what he did? He slowed me down. But he was was graceful. He was very gracious towards me. He was never rude. Rude would have been, John, come on. Let's think this through right. You don't really believe that, do you? That'd be kind of rude. And again, we have to be like that. All right, so how does this play out in church? You get a lot of young Christians. You got older Christians, middle Christians, young Christians, baby Christians, no Christian. All coming to this church. Some aren't even believers. But again, how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, the kindness and the patience all plays out as far as whether or not we're rude. And if we're gracious, by the way, that wins a hearing. Many Christians have forfeited the opportunity for witnessing by rudeness to an unbeliever who offends them by habit the non Christian considers improper. In other words, sometimes we push our rights and hurt others in the process. In other words, the messenger can become a barrier to the message. And I think that's why Paul throws this one in. He's not rude. He just is gracious. He, he looks at the person. He understands where they are, where they are on their growth pattern. If it's a sin, they would he would confront it. But the reality is you can be very gracious in the process. I've had some people here at this church that have been very gracious. I think back on some of the very foolish things I did when I first came that I, I probably should have been fired for. Why? Not because they were sinful, but just how I was like a, bull in a china cabinet but then again Dale told me last week that's not true something about mythbusters or but but the point is is you know people were gracious we'll leave it at that let's go on by the way the corinthians weren't i mean when they came to the table they brought their own food didn't share it with their brother that's pretty rude you know during worship service each tried to outdo the other in the gifts especially with tongues that's pretty rude you know each tried to be the most dramatic and most prominent, disorderly. That's all rude. Well, let's go on. Two more. Three more. Three more? Oh, I need three more. Love does not seek its own. Again, I think this is the root. A few minutes ago we were looking at doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, is not rude. Those three. I think this is the root. Doesn't seek its own. It's, in other words, it is not self-centered not self-centered. In other words, this is the motive behind why a person would be puffed up. It's... I like what... what there was this uh, tombstone in an in, in English village and it read this. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. But you know what? I, I know he's talking about money, but think about this in the context of your what god has given you for other people are you a miser with your gifts are you a miser with the one another's? are you a miser with your time towards your brothers and sisters are you self centered are you self-centered or as philippians says look out for the personal interests of others are you self-centered boy we can get busy Busy with our own life, busy with our family, and somehow forget that God has bl- sought... He wants us to be blessing to not only our own family, wife, children, husband, children, whatever, grandchildren, but also others. And that's seek its own. Seek its own means it's, it's self-centered. We need to be self-forgetting. And then love is not provoked. It means to be aroused. Tanger! Thank you. I think some of you are starting to fall asleep. I've got to get through these last two. I really want to, because these all kind of work together. These are all the negatives. The one starting in verse 6 kind of plays off of each other. So, provoked, are you easily provoked? How does that play out in a church? Boy, you know how it plays out in a family. Like one person said, well, I, you know, I, um, you know when I get angry, it only lasts for a minute. Yeah, so does a nuclear bomb, <laughs> right? It does a lot of damage. See, this is a person that is not... One, one commentator said this, not touchy in the, in the sense of... Just huh, huh, leave me alone. No sudden outbursts of emotion or action. Not irritable. They don't fly into a rage. They're good-natured. That would be the opposite of this. They're good-natured. I'm not saying you never get angry. By the way, there are certain times you should be angry. If it has to do with sin... You should be angry. Remember Isaiah said this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You should be angry at sin. You should be angry at immorality and contradictions in the Word of God. You should be angry even when you see it in, on TV or listening to on the radio or on the Internet. I mean, God gets angry. Psalm says God is angry with the wicked every day. You see Christ getting angry in the temple twice in His life because how it had, you know... How they were perverting what God has, uh, had wanted in the temple. But this type of being provoked has to do with us personally. You're not provoked when someone hurts you. You get upset with when it's about God and His work or His people, but it's not about us. Do you see how these all flow together? Because He just said, you know, you're not self centered. If you're self centered, you're going to be hurt. We have to be like Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. See, love does not get angry when someone does or says something against us personally, or when someone prevents us from having our own way. Again, you can see how that plays out in ministry. I can't get upset if someone doesn't give me my way. I don't want to blow off the handle. MacArthur, John MacArthur said this, and I think it's very profound. He said, Surely the number one reason, both for mental and physical illness in our society today, is the overwhelming preoccupation with our rights and the consequent lovelessness. We don't love. We're selfish, and now everyone's offending us. Or For many people, it's like that. It's almost like some are looking to be offended. It's almost like they have a, you know, like on their back t-shirt, offend me so I can hold a grudge no no he doesn't get angry love does not demand its rights it's not self centered it never reacts in self defense again the cure is to center our attention on others on on the Lord I tell you just love Lord it's not about me I have no rights I'm your slave Lord just let me serve you Yes, maybe someone won't compliment me. That's fine. Lord, I may not get my way. That's okay. It's about being your slave. It's about being your servant. It's about serving your people. Lord, I am just thankful that I am not going towards hell. I am just thankful that you gave me the truth and I am part of your family. Well, you savor the gospel and it really puts you on a path of love. And then finally, and we'll close with this one, love thinks no evil. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. And this is the bookkeeping term. By the way, guys, we're all moving towards April 15th. This is where this really plays out, right? You got to give all your information about all the stuff that you did for this last year. And you bring it to your accountant or h and Block, whoever, and, and he, this is what he does. It's bookkeeping terms. This term, loganizomai, is a bookkeeping term that means to calculate or reckon, is one figure in an entry in a ledger, but the purpose of the entry is to make a permanent record that can be consulted whenever needed. That's why they make the entries. Now, what is he referring to? Thinks no evil, How, what, Pastor. What are you talking about? I'm not following with the, the the pattern here. This, what he's getting at, is this: keeping track of wrongs that someone else did to you. By the way, if you keep track of wrongs, this is what's going to happen in your life: you're going to get angry. Then you get bitter, unhappiness, resentment, maliciousness. See, there's a pattern here. And Paul says immediately, listen, if you really want to show God's love, think no evil. Don't keep track of other people's wrongs. In other words, he's saying, don't lick your wound. You get hurt. Don't anticipate payday for that person. Boy, they hurt me so bad. I'm waiting for that, for them to get it. It doesn't keep books of the wrongs done against it. And then reads and rereads and rereads that book. In fact, uh, Warren Weersby said he knew a man who said he was a Christian that literally had a book that he wrote down the offenses and the hurts of people. I mean, that was how detailed he was. And he kept thinking about it. You know, that same word, let's just go over and we'll, we'll be, this will be the last passage you have to turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. This word accounted. Keeping track of. It's used in this passage, I think, nine times. It's where Abraham was justified by faith. Let's just skip down to verse 3 for time. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, this bookkeeping term. It was laid to his account. There was a specific righteousness that was given to Abraham. Whereas Paul says, don't keep track of, your, of wrongs. Here it says, God gave him righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. In other words, it's that bookkeeping term, accounted. It is laid down. It's very clear. This is what Abraham has been given. And this word imputed, you go through the rest of the passage and he says that the Lord doesn't impute to you sin. So the idea is this. God takes your sin and puts it on Christ as a, as a, as a concrete solution to your sin. And he takes Christ's righteousness and places it on you. And both of those are the word impute or you know, again, you can either say appute or accounted to. Like if I say I'm going to give you um, twenty thousand dollars, then what that will do is that is going to be taken from my account and accounted to your account, and then you can use my twenty thousand dollars in your bank account. It's been transferred. and And the the point of scripture is this: when you come to Jesus Christ, your sin is accounted to Him; He paid for it, and then His righteousness is accounted to you, and that's why you're righteous in Him. And Paul says this. Think no evil, but don't account evil to your brother. Think no evil, in other words, one once sin is placed on the blood uh, under the blood of Christ, there is no more record of it. God wiped our sins and has placed his, his son's righteousness to our credit in god 's heavenly record. The only entry after the names of his redeemed is righteous. There's no sin because we are counted righteous in Christ. Christ's righteousness is placed to our credit and no other record exists. In other words, there's no resentment on God's part. He has placed it on our account and we are righteous. So what is Paul's point? If God has made you righteous in his son, has forgiven you, how dare you hold something against your brother? Now, this is where it gets really personal. Luke chapter 17 says this, and you don't have to turn there. But he says this, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And the idea is this, that we should be clear, we should have a current record, uh, as one, one person said, keep current with all the offenses that people have. Ask yourself this, is there someone that's a believer that you have an offense against? Is there a sin? And if that's true, have you gone to, and let's say a person has sinned against you. Have you told them that? And if you have told them that, have they sought to repent and have you forgiven them? I think we hold grudges. And then it turns into anger and bitterness and resentment and all the other things that happen. I know that I have gone to certain Christians and they will not... I'll ask them, what have I done? And they will not tell me. They will not tell me. They skirt the issue and they say, well, no, sometimes it's even people who have left this church. Have have I done anything? Oh no, no, nothing. And then I hear about it by someone else that I had. You see what, what happened? They were dishonest with me and they never, never did the biblical mandate of going, con- confronting, and allowing me to have the opportunity to get restored with that relationship. No, I just want to get out of here. So when, when Paul says, keeps no track of evil, doesn't uh, take account into a wrong suffer, what he's getting at is this. Make sure if you really want to be like God, if you want to show that last facet of love, that if someone has done something against you, you go to them. Or if you think that you've offended someone else, you go to them. Either one, the person that knows about it, should go, whether you're the offender or the endee. But you need to go to them. I believe many times that, that love, I mean, that the offense starts to pull people apart. Again, love does not forgive and forget, but rather remembers and still forgives. A wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. I remember when we went to Hawaii, there was this volcano and it kept spilling. It was active. It kept spilling into the sea. You know what? No matter how much hot lava was in that volcano, it could never quench the sea. And our love is like that sea. Unfortunately, sometimes we get hurt and we hold it. And it starts to build. And this is what happens. And then before long, it colors the way you look at that person. And the problem is this. They don't even know it. You never told them. And now before long, there's this divide. And God is saying to you, you know what? How? This is what he's saying. How dare you? How dare you? Hold something against your brother. How dare you not resolve it as quick as possible, whether you're the offended or the offender. How dare you do that when look at all I've done for you. This is very serious stuff. If you know of a situation in your life, you need to make that top priority. Whether you're the offender or the offended, you need to be proactive in resolving this. Let's stand as we worship him. As we bow for prayer, I want you to ask yourself, is there sinful anger in my life? Bow your heads and just ask God, is there sinful anger, resentment, bitterness, maliciousness, all those things. Is there something there because someone hurts you? And you never even told that person or you know you hurt a person and they're dealing with that and you are not willing to confess that sin to them. I would encourage you to get that right. First of all, confess it to God because we ought to love and then go to that person whether you're the offender or the offended. Again, our love should be so great especially if we are the offended that it should be like an ocean that can quench any hurt father again we thank you for these facets of love and we feel so inadequate because we are and lord as we walk with you we know that you will develop these in our lives by the power of the holy spirit father these were all negative today and yet, let us see the positive part of them To not be proud and arrogant, to be humble. Not to be self-focused, but to be selfless. Lord, help us to truly seek to minister to one another, to build up one another. And Lord, again, if there's issues that need to be resolved, may we put that as the top priority. Father, thank you that you do not hold our sin against us that you have transferred the righteousness of Christ to our account. And Lord, with gratefulness, we want to love one another. In Christ's name, amen.